0: Today's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35, and can be found on page 974 of the Church Bibles, starting at uh, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic, or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. This is
1: the word of the Lord. Well, a very happy new year to you for 2019. On Sunday mornings and in house groups, we're um, going to be looking at the central section of Matthew's Gospel. One of the benefits of house groups is that we can learn through the interaction with each other about our Christian discipleship. But as someone was saying to me only this week, how much the opportunity for friendship and for reciprocal support and encouragement in the highs and the lows of life, and they can be a very great benefit. If you'd like to know more about house groups, then speak to myself, uh, Janet Wardock, or John Ellison. So we're uh, in the middle of, uh, well, approaching the middle of Matthew's Gospel. We'll have got there by Easter time. And the context is that uh, Jesus has just burst onto the scene His message has been the kingdom of God has arrived, repent and believe the good news. Basically, it means that God has appeared. Though he was always rather subtle in his uh, indication that it was in him that God had arrived. And there's a very obvious reason why, because he needs to demonstrate who he is so that people can then evaluate him. If he was very explicit, and uh, he was pretty reasonably explicit because, as you know, on his first sermon, they took up stones to stone him to death. They'd realised who he was claiming to be by the way in which he quoted and then explained the passage from Isaiah. And it was on the grounds of blasphemy that the Jews wanted him executed, although that wasn't the reason that the Romans had him executed. So he was the one which many different strands in the Old Testament, written over centuries, all pointed to. He was recognised as one who taught with authority. What he taught had the ring of truth about it what he was saying cohered within itself. It didn't contradict itself. And it corresponded to how people uh, actually experience life. It rang bells. It sounded authentic. Then there was the moral excellence of his character, supporting the claims that he was making through his teaching. It's interesting that none of his opponents could find anything wrong with him, other than this charge of blasphemy. Which, if, it was, if he was wrong in his claim, then, of course, it was something against him. But as it was right, it was not. And if his teaching and his character were not assuring enough, he had the ability to do miracles. The kinds of things which they said had never been done in Israel, at least certainly not in their lifetime, not in living memory. The way Jesus behaved was akin to the way Moses behaved before Pharaoh, who announced ten times in a row yet another miraculous intervention of God. Or like the prophets Elijah and Elisha, who amongst other miracles, Actually raised an individual from the dead. Even his fiercest critics, the religious leaders, whether the establishment Pharisees or the uh, Sadducees or the populist Pharisees, are not recorded as saying that he didn't do miracles before their eyes. Their way of wriggling out of the obvious implication was to ascribe his power not to a benevolent force acting for good, but for a malevolent force. But that just shows how desperate they were to try and rubbish him, to not have to recognise who he was and his authority. They saw him as a rival. And they feared it. And they wanted to silence him. Now this week we're in verses 9:35 to 10:15. And there we see the compassion of Jesus coming to the fore. Next week we'll also look, as we move on in the second half of Matthew 10, how divisive a figure Jesus also was and is. Now divisiveness is not always a bad thing if it's a division between truth and error, good and bad, God and the alternative if in fact it's just provoking us to see more clearly the reality of the world in which we live and to point out starkly the need to decide whose side we're on. So if you follow in the, uh, the outline, we'll look at um, compassion, which is Jesus' default attitude to human need. Now, Jesus went through, we read, all the towns and villages. Well, clearly not all in an absolute sense, but in a more general sense, he did cover a lot of territory in the Galilee. But the Galilee was only one part of what we now call the Holy Land, or what they they did the the boundaries of Israel in Jesus' day. It was quite extensive. He would not have had time in order to have visited everywhere in the Galilee, let alone the... uh, whole of the country, and so he needs others to do it, and he starts with this mission of the Twelve. Now, he had taught in synagogues. Basically, he was saying that the Old Testament pointed to the arrival of a Messiah, a saviour of God's people, and that various streams of teaching, as I've said, were coming together in a person, in him. And he was proclaiming or announcing or heralding the good news of the gospel of the kingdom, the rule of God. God has come and this is their chance to be reconciled and at peace with him. And he provided evidence of who he was and illustrations of what he had come to do by healing every disease and sickness. So when he did these miracles, for example, somebody who had been born a a quadriplegic from birth and then instantly before your eyes have full mobility, or when somebody grossly deformed by some horrible skin disease like leprosy perfectly acquires limbs and skin when people so troubled in mind that they displayed extremely bizarre behaviour, which nobody was in a position to help them, and they returned to become normal. When people blind from birth could see, or people unable to speak, talk, or even on a few occasions, somebody who'd been dead for a while comes back to life, people would ask themselves two questions in the face of that. Who can do such things? Remember, what Jesus did was instant, public, complete. They were restored to exactly as they should have been. Now nobody, before or after or now, has a track record like Jesus. Nobody. He never failed. He said he would do something and he did it. I think there are 34 references in the New Testament to Jesus performing miracles and some of those are on multiple, on multiple people. So what would your answer be? you're surely looking at some supernatural source with benign intent. And the second question you would ask is, what is this guy up to? Why is he doing this? And it would seem to be clear that he is putting things back to how they were intended to be. In other words, he was trying to illustrate that he was in the business of reversing the adverse effects of the fall when human beings decided to ditch God and to do their own thing. To a time when people lived in peace and harmony with God, as was the intention of creation, deemed by God himself to be good, but which sadly had gone awry which literally means to become twisted and distorted. Now the emphasis on every disease, verse 35, means of course that nothing is beyond his power. Well that was who he was. God himself, with both power and character to match, teaching them by his message and his miracles that he had arrived, And that this was their chance to realign themselves with him. What, though, was his view of them? Verse 36. When he saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Well, he draws upon two biblical metaphors, both of which are agricultural. Sadly, they were, he says, like sheep without a shepherd. But hopefully his labourers were like facing a bountiful harvest. They would work all day um, right into dusk, uh, starting at dusk and, you know, when it rises and when it sets. Yeah, <laughs> dusk and dawn and dusk, get the right, yes, right. Dawn is in the morning, dusk is in the evening, and they'd work right up to the last possible minute till it's too dark. It was so; The harvest was so bountiful if they'd only get working. He, when he describes them as a sheep without a shepherd, that kind of image is scattered throughout the Old Testament. But he is particularly thinking of Ezekiel 34 where God instructs the prophet to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel because they had used their office to take care of themselves rather than the flock of God. They're described there as eating curds, which I presume are an expensive luxury food, and clothed themselves with wool, which I guess was the kind of, uh, you know, the most expensive kind of material available to them. And they feasted on the best animals but they have no concern to strengthen the weak, to heal the sick, and to bind up the brokenhearted. They don't search for the strays, but rule the flock harshly and brutally, so that the sheep are scattered and become prey to wild beasts. In effect, Ezekiel is saying, they have no shepherds. And therefore God declares himself to be against such shepherds who are responsible for his flock. And he is going to remove them. And instead he promises, Ezekiel 34, 11, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. So what Jesus is communicating is that the time is running out, Matthew's saying. The old shepherds of Israel have been served notice. The good shepherd has arrived and will gather and shepherd a new flock. But because the task is so great, he will send out his representatives to accomplish it, even though they are too few. At that time, in number. Next, we see, we see uh, secondly, that um, the comparison of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus issues in a call to pray. At this time in the first century, the Jews were not only spread throughout the country of Israel Palestine, but throughout the world. They were present around the whole Mediterranean basin, both north of it and south of it. They even went as far south as Ethiopia, and we know that there were synagogues in India, even, at that time, and presumably much of the area between. And, of course, um, at Jesus' ascension there was the Great Commission to fulfil the promise given to Abraham 2,000 years before that they were to reach all nations of the world. A plentiful harvest, but too few workers to bring it in. But God had gone before them. They may appear to be a small group, that God had forgotten about. But no, now it is all happening. They are to pray for labourers to gather the new people of God into his kingdom. And Jesus begins with what he's got, the twelve that he has been particularly discipling. And they are the answer to what Jesus had asked them to pray for. Then we see the compassion of Jesus' issues in mission, carried out by these disciples in chapter 10. The first four verses are commissioning them, and the remaining ten, they carry out his instructions. So the first point to note is that the twelve were functioning as an extension of Jesus' ministry on earth. They were given authority over evil spirits to miraculously heal every disease and sickness. Now, of course, the mention of evil spirits can all too easily spook us, and especially if our thoughts are guided more by unhelpful films, which we may have seen, like The Exorcist or The Omen, and doubtless much else. Becoming a Christian at the age of 12 myself, on a uh, then Crusader camp, which is now what urban saints are called, Uh, I think ever since then I've had an an intuitive instinct for an aversion to any kind of horror films. I don't like them at all. I think it's actually, I can realise looking back, it's good to avoid having some images in your head, if you can, because that just gives scope for probably unhelpful dreams. Although I'm one of those people who never seem to remember what on earth I'm supposed to have dreamt about. But the Bible sees human history as a battle between two unequal forces, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the prince of this world, the devil. You see, we're all born into the latter, and the purpose of life is to transfer our allegiance to the former, They are unequal because although at times it might not appear to be so, the outcome is certain. There is only going to be one winner and that will be God. Now the Bible sees the devil as having blinded our eyes so that we don't see the light and that we don't hear the truth and that is kept from us. Our default is to live in his kingdom where we're trapped, unable to liberate ourselves because we live in darkness. Jesus, though, was the kingdom or the rule of God come to earth and he came to illuminate us so we can see what God is like and what the other possibility is. And he came to teach so we could hear his take on life. He came to demonstrate that he was authentically divine by signs and wonders. And his death meant his defeat of evil, for he had lived a perfect life and so was able to be a perfect sacrifice and to pay the penalty we human beings are not able to pay because of our moral and spiritual debts. So the devil has no claim on us if we are in Christ. The devil might try and say at our trial on the day of judgment, hey, he did wrong. He should be punished. And Jesus will be able to say in our defence, I suffered the punishment instead of him. The devil might say, she's mine. She's enslaved to me. Jesus will say, she's been redeemed, she's been set free. The price for her freedom has been paid. Or he might say, he's alienated from God, but Jesus would say, no, I've effected a reconciliation. No barriers remain between us. And the devil goes off with his tail between his legs, metaphorically. Now Jesus is more powerful, and he has defeated the devil, though he hasn't put an end to him yet. By his life, he resisted the devil's temptation to sin, and by his death, he paid the penalty for our sins, which might otherwise have to be paid by us, but which we're not able to pay for. So if we recognize that through repentance, that's turning away from that world and faith turning to Christ's world, we are liberated from one to enter the other. That is the reality of life. The driving out of evil spirits in the New Testament were great visual aids where those who exhibited bizarre behaviour were liberated from the dark world that they inhabited through the authority of Jesus. But in one sense, we're all in that dark, trapped world and we all have to be liberated by Jesus. They are an illustration of what is an unseen reality in us. And we transfer from one world to the better world through repentance and faith, in the one who has the power to effect our liberation. Colossians 1.13 For he, that's God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now notice as we move on, that uh, the diversity that there is amongst those 12 that he's chosen. James and John are fishermen. Peter and Andrew are also fishermen. But Matthew, formerly known as Levi, had been a tax collector, whereas Simon had been a zealot. One collaborated with the Romans and ripped off fellow Jews in the process. The other was actually part of a terrorist group who focused upon violence as the way to drive out the Roman occupiers. What brings men from such diverse backgrounds together? And the answer is Jesus. Next we see their mission was to be only at that time to the Jews in the historical land that had been given to them, verses 5 and 6 the Diaspora Jews who lived throughout the world and the Gentile missions, they were all to come later. But now, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, it was limited, this mission, that they were to go on to, quote, the lost sheep of Israel. Their message was to be the same. And their evidence of the truth of that message was to be their ability to do miracles too, verse 8. Now, sometimes Christians have argued that Jesus did miracles, the apostles did miracles, and therefore we should do miracles. However, I think it's significant to note that while for the missions of the 12 and the 72, the envoys were enabled to perform miracles, In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we're not given authority to do such things as, if you like, ordinary disciples, which I think goes a long way to explain why there may well be occasional miracles today, one-offs, and yet today there are no people, nor have there been since Christ and the Apostles, people who have the ability to go around doing miracles, saying they're going to do it, and every time, the apostles once weren't able to do a miracle, but apart from that, every time they did. There have not been in history such people, and there aren't today, once you start looking at it. One-off miracles, yes, but not people who behave like the apostles or Jesus, or the great prophets of the Old Testament, like Elisha, Elijah, and Moses. And the reason why the Bible gives us the answer is because those people had that ability because it was God's way of attesting that the message that He had given them was the truth. They then got it recorded in what is the Old Testament and now the New Testament. And so there isn't the need, because there is no fresh revelation, there isn't the need for people capital P, Prophets, and capital A, Apostles, to exist today. God has nothing new to say between the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the return of Christ at the end of time. And that's why. Then we see B. We see um, uh, this ministry is to be exercised without any sort of personal financial gain. We read in 10B... Freely you have received, freely give. And that may be expressed by us through hospitality in our homes, through free access to all that we put on in the life of our church. It may be acts of mercy. I mean, the church and M&M have a trust so that anyone can go on those camps irrespective of their sort of financial needs. But also it's open to individuals. If you, for example, saw your granddaughter or grandson or that they had a friend who was from a particularly poor family and who quite rightly probably doesn't quite appreciate the value, the spiritual value of such camps, would it be on your radar to, in a sensitive way, just offer for them to be able to go? That is how Christians should behave. It's quite obvious that this is a short-term mission, verses 9 to 10. It's limited to a few weeks because they were told not to take any cash with them nor even a change of clothes. In the next section, it explains why. They were to seek out a worthy person, verse 11, what the Old Testament probably calls a person of Peace. Now given the initial popularity of Jesus it may, and the stir that he was at that particular moment he had created with some opposition but limited opposition people who had begun to hear about what he'd done and say would probably be quite interested and so it may not have been too difficult to find such a person whilst the uh, disciples were on this mini mission. The person in accepting them may be indicating a warmth towards the message of Jesus that they were bearing and they were to bless the home if that was the case. But if they were not welcomed, if the people were not prepared to listen, they were to shake the dust off their feet, something devout Jews did when they left Gentile territory. Such a response by the people that they were visiting, is said to be very short sighted. And Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned, two towns, quite possibly in the northeastern part of the Dead Sea, which in the days of the patriarchs had a reputation for gross immorality and pagan religion. Why then? Would it be more bearable on the day of judgment, Jesus says, for Sodom and Gomorrah than for any town or village that either doesn't listen or doesn't welcome his envoys? And the answer is because such villages had turned down knowing about something which the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah could rightly claim ignorance of. That is, the arrival of the kingdom of God and the saviour of the world, accompanied by such signs and wonders. You see, as Jesus would say, to whom much is given, much will be required. Well, what is there to take away from this part of the Bible for us today? Well, there are many possibilities, but I'll just flag up four. Why did Jesus have compassion on the crowds? Well, not primarily because they were sick or diseased. Jesus was not some kind of first century NHS. If he was, he was behaving ra- in a rather restricted sense because sometimes he would, uh, he would just stop performing miracles and he would go off for R&R, rest and, and rehabilitation. He'd go off for a rest. No, the miraculous restorations to normality were to identify who he was and illustrate what he'd come to do primarily. He had compassion because, verse 36, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he was their shepherd. It was with him that people needed to be connected for leadership, for direction, for explanation, for protection, for care, and ultimately for their salvation. The second thing, why in our attempts to help folk connect with Jesus should we face the task with optimism? What does Jesus say? The harvest, verse 37, is plentiful. You see, I think what I've observed in life is once people are living an authentic Christian life and then just talking naturally about how they spend their time and what they do and their perspective on life and their wisdom that they impart, that actually people will start to recognise and they will start to think, yeah, what this person's saying is true. And how they live backs it up. And they will then ask us more questions. And that is our opportunity to give answers that we've learnt from God himself through the Bible. Thirdly, should we ever give up on somebody, shake off the dust from our feet? We just give them up as a lost cause. You see, the origin of this thinking is the distinction between clean and unclean, which the Jews had, and the Gentiles came into the unclean category. Now, we don't follow such distinctions. That's all part of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, which has been fulfilled in Christ. But the principle might be that some people and some contexts are too tempting for us, particularly if they are areas that we may have fallen in in the past, it would be wise for us not to operate in, since they might contaminate and overcome us. And of course, there might be someone who just doesn't want to listen to our religious stuff, in which case, we do shut up. I mean, after all, there's nothing worse than somebody who you meet who starts talking to you about their particular pet interest in life. Let's just say, for argument's sake, Liverpool Football Club. <laughs> um, and your friend um, is not actually even interested in football, let alone the Premier League, and they don't really know who Liverpool, I don't even know what colour they play in. Well, of course, we just drop the subject and talk about something else. But whether it is right forever to, as it were, drop the subject will depend on whether they are family members who we have an ongoing relationship with, work colleagues, teammates, or whether they're not. And then lastly, to appreciate the diversity that we have within our own church here. The apostles were drawn from just one ethnic group, but even that ethnic group of a dozen had marked differences, especially politically. And yet, with Jesus as their master and his overarching narrative of life, they were united. Because any other differences become comparatively minor. As I've said before, we have about 25 different nationalities that go to make up our congregations at St. Mary's. So you could visit 25 different countries without ever leaving Basingstoke if you got to know one another even better. There are even more cultures than 25, and so there would be an opportunity to learn about them. But more importantly, the diversity of church here extends the reach of our church as there are more backgrounds for a seeker to connect with and so a greater chance that we have someone who is very similar to them. And that aids the transmission of the gospel. But our diversity goes beyond nationality or ethnic background because there are other barriers aren't there in our society there are economic ones social ones educational ones even kind of spare time activity ones economically the range in our congregation is very large there are probably some who have a six-figure income and there are others who live on benefits Socially, if we were a kind of rural situation, there are some who may well be deemed the squirearchy and others who might be deemed the peasants. Educationally, there are those who have uh, none, no qualifications at all, and there are those who have doctorates. There are sporty types, and I know because I've watched you, that some of you can't catch a ball or throw it at all. You're completely uncoordinated. Even though, of course, you might think that you're very sporty, but I'm kind enough not to point that out to you. The diversity enriches our lives together and extends the reach to a greater range of people who live in Basingstoke and the surrounds. And our hope is that they might find a Christian as well as a cultural Welcome amongst us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, the moral and spiritual character of our lives might be refined by the small groups we belong to in this life and help us to be laborers for the harvest which is here today to be brought in and grant us courage and character and clarity of expression in our lives for Jesus' sake we pray Amen